I'm Jeremy. I'm alcoholic. Um, happy to be here tonight. I thank the Jay Walkers for having me, and um, thanks to Bill and Tony for their leads. Uh, great talk by both you guys. Good to see you, and um, it's good to be here. I haven't been to this meeting in, in quite some time since pre-COVID. Actually, I used to come on Zoom when everything was on Zoom. And um, what's up, Zoom? How y'all doing? Um, Anyway, my sobriety date is the 17th of September, 2000. Took my last drink that day, and I uh, didn't plan on that happening. I had a little bit of help. Bill talked about some of the help that we find getting to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had a little bit of help uh, from the man in the black robe and uh, found Alcoholics Anonymous living in a gated community. And um, wasn't my first wasn't my first time in that environment, um, but knock on wood, hopefully it will be my last time living in that environment. I um, I'm real grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm real grateful for the way that I got sober. I, I watch people come in and out of here and uh, struggle to to get this thing and stay sober. And honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to do it, separate myself from alcohol long enough for something to happen, you know, um, like, like was talked about for, for that, that moment to happen where the obsessions removed and I no longer have a desire to take a drink. I don't know if that would have happened for me. Um, had I not been physically separated the way that I was for the length of time that I was, uh, I'm grateful I was introduced to AA that way. And, and I'm grateful that I got a strong, solid foundation in Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions, um, the first home group that I had on the outside, uh, credit study group down in Portsmouth, Virginia. And the guys that um, helped me down there, I'm forever grateful for those guys in, in that group down there. It was, it was my, they were my people. I, I fit right in. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe tough guy. And, and those guys, I'd go to that meeting and I'd walk up and Guys would come in and kick their feet up and put their gun up on the table and kick their feet back on the table and, and lean the chair back and and sit there. And, and I'd sit back and I'd look at them like, Jesus, you know, and where, where am I? What have I got myself into? And um, but those were the very first guys that reached out a hand to me and dropped what they were doing when I needed help. So I'm real grateful for that introduction. I, uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm trying to tell you. What I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today is a result of these 12 steps and um, having a relationship with that power that's out there that's bigger than me. And you can call it what you want. You can believe in it, not believe in it. Uh, if you're sitting here, you believe in something besides yourself. That's just my opinion. Um, but it, it, it worked for me in the beginning. So I, uh, my, my story is not any different than anyone else's. My, my circumstances may be a little different than yours. Uh, but the, the, the general idea of uncontrolled drinking is there. Uh, the general idea of the obsession to drink to get that ease and comfort and relief is there. Uh, hopefully I convey that through my words and somebody can identify with that and get something out of what I say tonight. Uh, Marcy and I were talking a little bit ago and I was going to, I asked her permission to lead in with something and she said, yeah, sure, go ahead and guide your own talk. Don't, don't worry about letting God do it. So now I can't, I can't, I can't lead in with that anymore because she made me, she made me feel guilty about that. So anyway, I, uh, my childhood, I, I, you know, I remember just kind of feeling separated and out of place and different from other kids growing up. 
Uh, I don't recall anything traumatic that made me feel that way. I just remember my earliest memories of feeling different than the other kids, uh, just being shy and, and, and timid. And, and what I know today is afraid, uh, afraid of what you thought about me and, it, and afraid of not being enough. At, at four and five years old, where, where do you get those thoughts from? You know, um, but they were there. And as I got a little older, I looked up to the other kids out on the streets, around the, you know, around the neighborhood, riding bikes and stuff like that. I always tended to hang around kids that were a few years older than me. And, and even from an early age, man, I, I looked up to the kids that were doing the things that I was taught not to do. You know, uh, vandalism, stealing, lying, cheating. I mean, you name it. That's just kind of what I was attracted to. You know, I remember my sponsor telling me, guiding me through the book and reading Bill's story. And he said, you know, Bill was a stockbroker, highly educated, made a lot of money. He said, but try to identify what Bill's thoughts and his feelings and the progression of his drinking when you're reading the story. And so I try to do that. And, and there's, a, there's a spot in his book, in his story, where he talks about uh, his heroes. The people on Wall Street were his heroes and the people he looked up to. And I got to thinking about that and, and my heroes and the people that I looked up to, you know, in my formative years early on, especially when I started drinking. And uh, those were the guys that were running the streets, you know, the tough guys getting involved in criminal activity and drugs and, and that sort of thing. And it was exciting to me. It was exhilarating. And, you know, it took me the longest time to figure out uh, the danger of excitement, like it talks about in our 11th step. And I couldn't figure out why getting excited was dangerous. And, uh, and I've got countless experiences in sobriety to tell you why excitement is dangerous. And um, so those were my heroes. Those were the guys I looked up to and, and, and you know, had, I just I didn't have it in me uh, to do that stuff. Um, but I followed those guys around and I wanted to be that way. My home life at that time, my dad had left my mother and I got a brother that's 13 months older. And my mom couldn't afford to take care of us. So she called my dad and sent us up to Connecticut to live with him and his new woman that he was with. And this lady was in the military and she drank a lot and she, she got in a lot of trouble. Um, uh, she sat my brother and I down one night. I think I was around seven years old when I was up there, six or seven years old when I was up there. My dad worked 24 hours on and 24 hours off. He was in the, in the fire department. He was a fire inspector. And uh, she sat my brother and I down one night when he was working and gave us a little pony bottle miller high life and and let us drink that beer she started to tell us all these war stories about her going out to these bars and getting fights getting drunk getting in fights with these guys and stuff like that and i just remember sitting there and listening to those stories and feeling okay and being excited and, and, and enthralled by it and and i'm somebody that like like i shy away from people i don't know it's unfamiliar you know and um and i remember getting done finishing that beer and i remember asking her for another one and i you know i'm not i didn't have an obsession to drink potion drink at seven years old but for whatever reason, I asked her for another one. She said no. And, you know, I didn't wake up the next day trying to sneak any beer out of the refrigerator. I didn't wake up the next day thinking about what just happened the night before and, uh, and wanting to go drink. Um, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to come home to my mom back to Virginia. And, you know, about a month later or so, my mom and the guy she was dating who later became my stepfather drove up to Connecticut and picked me up. My brother chose to stay up there with my dad. And, um, and so I came back to Virginia and, and things were okay, and, and at some point early on, like, my father moved and had left no forwarding number, no forwarding address, nothing, just totally walked out of my life and took my brother. 
And over the next couple of years, we had no way to get in touch with him. And eventually, my mother found my brother through the Missing Children's Bureau. He had been in some legal trouble already and uh, down in South Carolina. And they had moved down there. Ended up going to family court down there, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But went and saw this doctor. We were down there, family counselor, and had a meeting in there. And, and it was just me and my dad. And the counselor said, you can ask your dad anything you want. It's safe. It's okay. And all I had was one question. And I said, why haven't you had, kept in touch with me? And... Um, and basically what he said was, that, you know, in order to keep peace in his home with his new wife, he had to cut off all communication with me and because his wife didn't want him communicating with my mother. So he just totally chummed me out. And I remember I'm 10 or 11 years old at that time, and I don't remember anything else about that. My mom told me that uh, the counselor, uh, Jackie Dolphin was her name, came out and had a conversation with my mother after that and suggested that my mother get me some psychiatric help because she had never seen a young child my age hear information like that and show absolutely no sign of emotion. And I learned early on to stuff any kind of feelings of pain, um, anything that made me feel uncomfortable or less than or unloved or weak. And, you know, and I got all this stuff going in the back of my head, like, why doesn't my dad love me? Here's the person that's supposed to love me the most and be in my life and take care of me. And he's just basically thrown me off to the side and told me he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And, uh, and that, does, that, that goes real well with somebody that's already feeling, you know, automatically low about themselves. That just, you know, that solidifies my thinking already right off the bat. Here it is. You know, the two people in my life, mother and father, and one of them has already told me basically that I'm worthless. I'm not worth loving. And, and that's it. So my stepfather was physically abusive uh, to the whole family. Um, so I lived in fear, meaning my own home. Uh, my brother ended up coming back to live with us. And... Um, there was a lot of tension, a lot of problems at home. I got drunk for the first time. I was 12 years old. And uh, and I remember for the first time, I was with a couple of buddies of mine, and we got somebody to buy some 12-pack of beer, and I remember drinking those beers with my friends, and I just remember being able to just to breathe, to be in the moment, to be in that present moment with those two guys and not feel less than, not feel better than, not be consumed with fear of what they were thinking about me, not be consumed with fear of not being good enough, not being consumed with fear of what's going to happen at home. None of that it was just to be able to be in that moment and to laugh and to joke and relax and have a good time. And, uh, and I remember going home after that and, and just going straight upstairs and, and taking a shower and going to my room and, and not coming out the rest of the night. And I probably hollered down the night at my mom or something like that. And, and that was it. I didn't wake up the next day thinking about that, dying to go do it again. That's just not my experience. You know, uh, over the next couple of years, I, I drank and got drunk when the opportunity presented itself or I presented the opportunity. Um, and that could be at seven o'clock in the morning at the bus stop if my buddy said, let's get drunk today. And I said, OK, I go to 7-Eleven, shove a bottle of Mad Dog down my pants and walk out. And, and we either drink it at the bus stop or I take it to school and we'd save it for after school. And I remember in eighth grade, we stayed after for a wrestling match. I had friends that were on the wrestling team and me and a couple of friends stayed after and I had a bottle of Great Mad Dog sitting in my locker all day. And school let out, and I remember walking around out in the backfield, and I drank three-quarters of that bottle of Mad Dog. And uh, my buddies got out there, and they were pretty upset that I drank it all. And uh, we walked down to 7-Eleven. I went in, stole another bottle, shoved it down my pants, walked out so they'd have something to drink. And uh, we get back to the school, and I'm starting to feel a little nauseous. And uh, I go to the bathroom. I go in the stall. And I sit in the stall, and I assume my position. And 
later on in my drinking, the guys that I drank with, when I was in my position, they knew that I was it. Jeremy's done for tonight. And I'd sit down, I'd put my elbows on my knees and my head in my hands like this, and I'd pass out that way. And, uh, and I sat down in that bathroom, and I passed out right there on that stall. And I remember coming to, and, and when I came to, and I walked back out, and I walked through the gymnasium, and I walked down to the end, and the ble- my friends were all sitting down in the bleachers, and they're all pointing and laughing. And, uh, and I just remember thinking, I'm, I'm cool. Like, I'm accepted. They're laughing at me. I'm like the center of attention, and it's fun. You know, and, that, and that's what alcohol gave me. It gave me that feeling of, of fitting in and being a part of. And, uh, and, I, and I could not experience that feeling with anything else. I tried a lot of other stuff. I did a lot of other stuff. Um, I, I, I smoked a lot of weed. I've snorted a lot of cocaine in my drink, and I was on a quarter ounce of cocaine a day. I've smoked a lot of crystal meth. I've done all that stuff. Alcohol is the only thing that gave me relief. All that other stuff gave me feelings. You better believe it. But alcohol is the only thing that gave me the relief from what was happening up here in my mind. And um, over the next few years, that's just what happened my drinking on and off. And, and I remember by 15 or 16 years old, you know, I, was, I made straight A's and B's through school. I was involved in extracurricular activities. I, I was in the orchestra. I played the viola for a couple of years. I was really good at it. I, uh, I played Chrysler Hall all city like three years in a row. The very first year I did it, my teacher called my mom and said, if I were to stick with that, I would have a future playing that instrument. It just came natural to me. And uh, as I got a little bit older, all the cool kids that were drinking and partying, they weren't carrying around those instruments. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't carry that instrument around with me, and I can't do it anymore. And, um, you know, I played football and and was on the track team. Obviously, I'm not a runner. I threw the shot putting discus. Um, By the time I got to 10th grade, that obsession to drink was on me, and uh, and it was out of my control. I uh, I got a part-time job working at a restaurant, and I was in, went to high school. And when I got into high school, you know, the coaches were coming out. You playing football? You playing football? You playing football? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I was scared I wasn't going to make the team. So I used the excuse of, well, I have to work. And I can't go to practice, so I couldn't play sports anymore. I had to drink. I had to make money, and I had to make money in order to drink to feed my habit. And um, 10th, 11th grade, somehow managed to get through school. By the time I was 18, a senior in high school, I was drinking getting drunk on a daily basis every single day. I'd come home from work, staggering in the house, bouncing off the walls. I'd hear my mom yell, you're is going to school tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, Mom. And I'd just go upstairs and pass out in my bed. I'd get up the next morning, get ready to go to school. I'd go to school. Sometimes I'd steal a 40-ounce from 7-Eleven and drink it before I went to school. Other times I'd just go to school. And, uh, and I'd sleep. I'd sleep through most of my classes. Uh, somehow I managed to skate by and graduate. I had a lot of help. I had a lot of, a lot of friends that would slide their paper over for me so <laughs> I could pass some tests. And uh, that's the only way I made it out of high school. And uh, I remember when I graduated, you know, Bill talks about in his story that, that feeling of having arrived. And I remember when I graduated, it was like when I turned 18, it was one thing, you know. And now I'm 18, I'm out of school, and you can't tell me what to do anymore. I mean, I've always had that attitude of you can't tell me what to do, but now you really can't tell me what to do. Even my parents can't tell me what to do, never mind the fact that I'm still living in their home. I'm still 18. <laughs> I'm still 18 and not in school anymore, so you still can't tell me what to do. 
and uh, my my dad had a rule. You know, my dad worked a lot, and, and he worked a lot of double shifts, and, and he needed to sleep. And, and the rule was if I wasn't in the house by midnight, I couldn't come in the house until 6 a.m. the next morning because they were tired of me coming in all hours of the night, bouncing off the walls, making a bunch of noise, waking, waking them up. And I was like, all right. You know, you would think, like, I'd try to get home by midnight. So, no. You know, that just means I, I got to find somewhere to stay. That's all. And uh, many mornings, my parents would wake up and find me passed out in my car, sitting out front. One morning, my mom came out and found me propped up against the garage in the front driveway with an empty fifth of tequila in the neighbor's yard. They found me passed out in the backyard in a lounge chair multiple times, countless times. And, uh, and I just laugh it off. You know, it never occurred to me what the neighbors thought about my family waking up and seeing me out in the yard, empty <laughs> liquor bottles in their yard. It just that thought never occurred to me. Never occurred to me that, you know, I need, to, I need to get home or I need to just not come home. I need to find somewhere to go. Because the only thing on my mind was doing whatever I needed to do in order to go out and drink and have a good time. And that was it. I graduated in June of 1994. And, um, Jesus, Marcy, I got like eight minutes. Um, it's, it's an inside joke between Marcy and I. Uh, I have about eight minutes. Um, I graduated June of 1994, uh, November of 1994, November 6th. I was out with some friends. We've been drinking all day and doing some other stuff. And we ended up going to this pool hall to play pool that night. We're drinking and stuff. I have a verbal altercation with the manager there. It carries over outside into the parking lot. There's a group of people out there in the parking lot. And uh, one of those guys starts following me to my car and he's running his mouth. By this point, like I've started... I started to have a, little, a few anger issues when I'm drinking and a few violent tendencies when I'm drinking. And, um, and I just didn't like people threatening me. I didn't like feeling threatened. Uh, I was going to show you weren't going to speak. You weren't going to disrespect me that way. You know, it was like it was a matter of respect, and I demanded that you respect me. It didn't matter how I treated you, but I demanded that you respect. You weren't going to speak to me that way, especially in front of, you know, my girlfriend. Like, you're not going to talk to me that way and, and make me feel like, you know, treat me like I'm a punk. My first thought was to get in my car and keep a tire iron underneath my seat. My first thought was to grab a tire iron and just beat them with it. My next thought was, no, there's about six or seven of them and one of me. That's probably not a good idea. I'll just drive straight towards them and make them think that I'm crazy and let them know they're not going to mess with me, thinking they're all going to get out of the way. So I get in my car and I black out. And the next thing that I remember is hearing the top of my car cave in and seeing two feet at the top of my windshield. And, uh, and I just kept going. My girlfriend's beside me, flipping out, screaming hysterically. And, uh, and I just kept driving. And, uh, and went, later on, one of the ladies that worked there, I went to high school with, uh, and she was there. You need to take that, buddy? No. All right. Hey, um, one of the girls that was out there that worked there, I went to high school with, she knew who I was. And uh, I ended up going home, waking my parents up, told them what happened. And I went to the police station to turn myself in. And I was November 6th. I was arrested for malicious wounding. And uh, November 8th was my parents' wedding anniversary. And uh, November 8th, they came and got me out of my cell and brought me down in front of the magistrate and they charged me with first-degree murder because a guy had died in the hospital. So now I'm 18 years old, just out of high school, facing 20 to life. And again, I told you, like, I'm a wannabe tough guy. Like, I'm not a tough guy until you give me some alcohol or drugs. Then I'm a tough guy. And, I, and it just doesn't matter. At that point, all bets are off. And uh, and now I'm terrified because I, I, I 
I don't I don't want to go. I've got two friends of mine that I went to school with that are already locked up in prison for some other stuff, you know. And at that that was around the time that show Oz was on on HBO, and uh, you know you you watch that stuff. It's like oh Jesus, that's what prison's like, you know. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm terrified. I sit in there, and, and eventually my my parents borrow a lot of money to get me a lawyer and and, and uh, get a bond hearing to bond me out eventually. And my lawyer suggests that I not drink and I not drive while I'm out on bond. I'd been in there long enough. My head was clear. I knew those were great ideas. I also knew that wouldn't have happened had I not been drinking. And um, so I just smoked pot and drank O'Doul's. I'm still hanging out with my buddies, still going out partying, still going to the bars. If you're, if you have a mind like my mind, smoking pot and drinking O'Doul's doesn't work. It doesn't cut it. It's just not enough. And uh, and I did that for a couple of weeks, and eventually I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go away for a long time. May as well go ahead and join myself and do what I want to do right now. And I started drinking again. And uh, I started seeing a, 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 a therapist while I was out. And I went to one AA meeting while I was out. I tried, you know, I decided I was going to quit drinking again. And um, I went to this AA meeting, and I remember reading the steps and the traditions, and none of them say anything about not drinking. Blew me away. And there's God in there. And uh, I'm not a God guy. I'm not a religious guy. I didn't grow up um, with a religious background. I have some things that I was told and taught. Went to church on occasion. Usually it was on a holiday. Uh, I would go to church from time to time with one of uh, one of my aunts, who was very, very religious. And um, and I used to just think she's one of those religious fanatics. You know what I mean? She's just crazy. And um, so while I was out on bond, I my aunt. It, she had moved out to West Virginia, and uh, my, her, my uncle, my cousin, and I went out there. I started making the rounds to visit my family because I didn't know how long it was going to be gone, if I'd ever see him again. And I went out there, and my uncle had built a house up on the side of the mountain where he had bought some property. And I get up there, and my aunt says, Jeremy, um, would you mind coming outside and praying with me? God is asking me to, to pray with you. And I was like, no, Linda, that's fine. I didn't want to say no and be rude. And we go outside. We're standing there. and We hold hands, close eyes, and she starts speaking in tongues, whatever language that is. And, and she told me, she said, Jeremy, God's telling me to tell you not to worry. You're not going to have to go for very long. And I'm thinking to myself, that's great, Aunt Linda, that God told you that. I don't, under, I don't quite know what God's definition of long is, but I'm facing a minimum sentence of 20 years and a maximum of life. Either one of those is pretty damn long to me. That's what I'm thinking. I go to trial. I take a jury trial. The jury convicts me of second-degree murder. I go back for the sentencing phase. The jury gives me the minimum sentence you can get in the state of Virginia, which is five years. I was under the old law before they abolished parole, which meant I only had to do 50% of that time, and I'm mandatory. I'm in that trial. My mother has a nervous breakdown. My father had to escort her out of there, crying, screaming uncontrollably. And, uh, and they take me out of there. And I'm looking at my family and my friends, and they're crying, and I don't understand why they're so upset. It doesn't make sense to me. I have you're two and a half years. You know what I mean? Easy peasy. Let's go. You know? Now, Grant, I didn't want to go there, but that's the way I was feeling. Two and a half years, no big deal. So what? Take me back to the cell. Start calling home. I'm calling home every day for about a week and a half, two weeks to try to get a hold of my mom. There's always some excuse. My aunt answers, she's not here. Dad answers, she's not here. She's out with so-and-so. She's at the store, blah, blah, blah. Finally, I call one day and my mom answers the phone. And I'm like, Mom, where you been? I'm trying to get a hold of you. She went home. She took a bunch of pills, tried to kill herself after my trial. 
our book talks about certain situations happening that is substantial enough for a hard drinker to not drink or to try to control, cut back and control their drinking. I believe that that situation was substantial enough for me to stop drinking or to try to cut back and control my drinking. And any normal human being would have felt terrible about that and been like, I'm so sorry, Mom. I'm so, so sorry I put you through this. But that's not, I'm not a normal person. I'm an alcoholic. Our book talks about the alcohol being only a symptom of a much deeper illness, a spiritual illness. And it comes to me in the form of selfishness and self-centeredness. And I, um, I told my mom, I said, Ma, you can't do that. I said, Ma, I need you now more than ever. I need you more. This is why I need you the most. You can't do that. You know, it's like, how dare you? And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm ate up with that. I'm ate up with that. And that, that's me. That example, that is me. That's my whole life in a nutshell right there. Selfishness and self-centeredness. Doesn't matter the hurts that I cause other people. Just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That man had two young kids that will never know their father. I took that away from them. I've been given a second chance to get to know my dad. I took that away from them. He was 23 years old. He was a member of the United States Navy. He had a wife and two kids and a mom and a dad. And I got to sit in that courtroom for four days and look at his mom and his dad and his wife, look at their faces for four days. I, uh, I went to prison. I did my time. I tried to keep my nose clean while I was in there. I, could, you know, I couldn't do that. I'm a drunk, right? I got to have something. So I got involved with the wrong people doing the wrong things in there, making wine, getting drunk, selling drugs, getting high, uh, doing some other things you're not supposed to do in there. Um, you know, thinking that when I get out, everything's going to be okay, get back on track, get my life back together. Uh, never, that play never involved not drinking. So I got out, uh, got out, uh, the very next day, started drinking, uh, back with the old friends, same place, doing the same thing. Got a job, you know, got a light. Got, <laughs> they never suspended my license. <laughs> they never, I didn't even get a UI, nothing, nothing. I went and got a lot, I went and got my driver's license probably the second or third day I was out. And um, saved up enough money, got a vehicle, and uh, still drinking and driving. Still hanging around the same people doing the same thing, you know. I can't smoke pot anymore because i got to go around and see my PO and take tests. But I heard cocaine's out of your system in 72 hours. So let me dabble in that a little bit because i, I got to do something. At this point, it's just the alcohol, it's, it's not, it, just the alcohol is not cutting it. I gotta, I'm doing other stuff to affect the effects of the alcohol on me. And... Um, I ended up, somehow managed to get off parole and uh, without getting in any legal trouble. I got a job uh, working in a restaurant. I uh, promoted rapidly to a management position. I was good at what I did in the restaurant business. And, um, you know, I, I lost that job due to getting in a fight in one of the local bars that I hung out at and got arrested again for assault. Um, if you're ever out and you decide to fight somebody just to fight them, don't make, make sure it's not a lawyer. You're going to get locked up. <laughs> So that happened, so I went away again, and um, and I got out last, I got out, and I was out, I got out in, in May of 2000, and I was out from May of 2000 to September 17th, took my last drink of 2000, and I had experienced some blackouts before and gotten in some trouble and stuff like that, but during that, during that time frame, from May to September, a lot of bad things happened in my life. I, I mean, I spiraled down so rapidly 
I, just, I mean, I, it's, just, it's, un, it's unbelievable how fast, how quickly I went down. And um, violent, so violent, family, friends, it didn't matter. Women, kids, didn't matter. Just didn't matter. I remember one night I was going to meet one of my dealers up at the 7-Eleven across the street from the apartment I lived in. There were some kids sitting out on the curb in front of the 7-Eleven. And I'm, I'm messed up. And I'm, you know, I'm walking through the parking lot looking at and I look over, and what I perceive is that this kid's looking at me in a threatening manner. That's what I perceive. That's what I believe. So I walk over and I put my cigarette on his face. That's who I was. That's, that's the kind of person that I was. Um, a guy I used to work, I was a bouncer at a bar for a little while. One of the, I used to hang out on Shore Drive, lived in Chicks Beach in Virginia Beach. And uh, was a bouncer at a bar, one, one of the bars I hung out at, the owner at. Hired me to work the door because I wasn't supposed to drink while I was on the job. And that was a way to keep me from causing problems in her establishment. It was the reason why she asked me to do that. Because I had been thrown out multiple times for fighting. And um, the guy that was the bar back there, he and I and one of the bartenders were walking after work one night, walking back to her house to continue partying. We are walking across the Lesnar Bridge, and I grabbed him and I hung him over to Lesnar Bridge so he would beg me not to drop him. And that was exciting for me. Like, I, I enjoyed, like, I got excitement. It was a thrill. It was, I'm a power seeker, and it just gave me an, an overwhelming sense of control and power. And ultimately, that's what I want, is a, a sense of control and power, because I know I'm absolutely powerless and I have no control over anything in my life. And um, I get up. My, my routine at this time is, is, you know, my alarm goes off at 9 o'clock in the morning, that means it's time for me to stop doing what I'm doing, go in the bathroom and get ready for work. My ride will be coming to pick me up soon because I don't have a license at this point. I don't have a vehicle. And um, I go in the bathroom, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm looking at what's looking back at me, and I shake my head. And I'm like, Jeremy, what the are you doing? Like I, I see my life going down and going nowhere, and, uh, and I have no way to stop it. None. I have no idea how to stop it. I tried to quit drinking. I tried to stop drinking. Me and a buddy of mine decided we we're going to stop drinking and just smoke weed. So we quit drinking and we smoked weed for a week. We're getting really restless, irritable, and discontent. So we decided to go to Power Hour one Wednesday night over at the bar at 5150 where they got 50 cent drinks. But we're just going to go over there and hang out with our friends and shoot pool. As soon as we walk in, like within five minutes, I, he's got a drink in his hand. I'm like, what are you doing? We're not supposed to be drinking. And I get angry because he's, he's my not drinking buddy. And now he's drinking. So now I have to drink. I'm like, oh, screw it. He's going to drink. I'm going to drink. You know, any excuse that I can come up with. And, uh, and I just drank and drank and drank and drank at night. And um, I remember getting arrested again, me and that same friend and my brother. We went back to uh, the same pool hall where I ran a guy over. And the same manager worked there. And um, we were kindly asked to leave immediately. And we're walking outside, and the whole group of them come out the front door again. And I turn around, and I look back at the manager, and I tell him, to make sure, I said, you bring your fat, you know what, out here, and I'll make sure I'll put you six feet deep this time. And uh, we get in my brother's truck, and we pull off, and uh, they, they called cops on me, pressed charges on me. They, they found me, and um, I was arrested for trespass and threatening bodily harm. I was out on bond for those charges. I was out for a couple of weeks when I got arrested on September 17th. And uh, my routine was I would drink for two, three, four days straight, round the clock, until my body would physically shut down. I'd sleep for about four to six hours. I'd get up and I'd start that process all over again. And uh, I still went to work. Most most days I still went to work. Um, go to work, messed up, 
work my shift, go in the back, take a nap in between lunch and dinner breaks, get up, go back out, drink a couple of beers. I'd have a little plate down in my cooler with my stuff on it so I could just dip down, do what I needed to do during my shift, and I'd start drinking again uh, towards closing time, and I'd stay up and I'd drink all night again and do that all over. And um, September 17th was the day, and it wasn't any different than any other day. I was at 7-Eleven at 6 a.m., 8 a.m., 10 a.m., buying beer. I was down at Chick's Beach Cafe having some uh, drinks with a couple buddies of mine at about 1 o'clock. We were leaving there and went across the street to a friend of ours' house, and we're hanging out. And I remember walking across the street to the truck to get the beer out of the truck. And when, when I did, this car drove by, and the old man yelled at me, get the F out of the road. Elderly man and woman out, probably leaving church, coming home from, from lunch or something. And I don't like people talking to me that way. I don't like being disrespected. So I take my bottle that I have in my hand, and I throw it. And I turn around, and I'm talking to my friends, paying no attention. About 10 minutes later, the cop car comes up. I get arrested again. The bottle went in that man's window, hit him in the head, and cut him open. They arrested me for maliciously launching a missile into a moving vehicle and assault and battery again. And I'm already out on bond. So I go, to, and, and this time when they arrest me, like, I'd been given an eviction notice for my apartment. I had two weeks to find somewhere to live. I had no money. I had nobody that would allow me to spend the night on the couch one night. Not one night. My, my behavior had become so unpredictable, nobody wanted to be around me anymore uh, when I was drinking. And I drank all the time. And uh, so I felt rescued when I went in there because um, I had nowhere else to go. And I figured I was going to get at least five years because of my because of my record. I figured I was going to do at least five years in the penitentiary, and I was okay with that. I was all right with that. See, I'm, it, it's not a it's, it's, trust me, it's not a it's not a really pleasant environment to be in, but I'm comfortable in that environment. I'm more comfortable in that environment than I am out in society because I know how to get by and I know how to survive in that environment. I don't know how to get by and survive out in society. I can't do that. And um, I was in there. I go to all my court dates except for one. I have one violation court date left. Uh, I was convicted. They, they lessened the felony to something else. Class It was a class five felony. I, I got seven or eight years. I got everything suspended. I had to serve a year and a half. And um, and again, like I feel like I got away with something. And uh, my last court date, right before my last court date, they came and got me out of Gen Pop, and they put me in the treatment program they had in that facility. And uh, this treatment program, you have to be sentenced by a judge to be there. It's not something you just sign up voluntarily. It's part. It has to be part of your sentence or your your pre-sentence or whatever it is. And that was not part of any of my sentences. Every time I went in front of that judge, nobody ever asked me about drinking. Not once. Not once. And uh, and they took me out, told me where I was going. I said, Nah. I said, I'm not going in there. I didn't ask to be in there. They, I've already heard about that block. They got rules. You can't be loud. Like you got to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Like I sleep all day and stay up, play cards all night. Like that's that's what you do when you're incarcerated. And, and I can't go in there. and. They take me, take us in there, like, all right, fine. If you don't want to be here, tell the counselor. And uh, so we get in there. The counselor comes the next day. He's got a stack of folders, calls everybody out of their cell one by one, sits them down, meets with them at a table, gets through all of his folders, looks around, looks around, he says, who are you? I have paperwork for you. I told him my name, and uh, he said, you want to stay or you want to go? We got one more slot open. I said, well, I think I'll stay because I think I have a problem. And that started my journey in sobriety. You know, I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I got introduced to Narcotics Anonymous in there. Uh, they had literature for both programs. I read everything I could get my hands on. I had a moment of clarity while I was in there, sitting in there. And um, and I started to read a book. And I started to identify with, with what it was talking about, the doctor's opinion, and, 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 uh, and more about alcoholism. And, there, and there's a line in there. There's a chat. There's a paragraph in there that describes me to a T. And it talks about the Dr. Jekyll and the Mr. Hyde. 
and the alcoholic being more or less insanely drunk, doing incredible tragic things while drinking. He is at times dangerously antisocial. That's me. You know, like any question of whether I'm a drunk or not was thrown out the window at that point. And um, that moment, that moment of grace, I could not have produced that moment on my own for anything. For anything. I mean, that wasn't like that wasn't the worst thing I'd ever did in my life. I had had a lot more worse situations and circumstances. But for whatever reason, at that particular time was the time, the open window that I had, and I grasped a hold of it. And uh, I spent I spent 14 months in that program when I was released, and the counselor I had in there had 20 years sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and and uh, a couple of things he said to me really st- stood out to me. One was that he said, "Go to a meeting the very first day you get out, you'll increase your chances of staying sober by 100 percent." The other thing he said to me was he got mad at me in a group one day and he looked at me and he said, work the steps or die, mother. You can fill in the blank. And I told you I don't like people talking to me that way. But I sat there and I knew that man was telling me the God's honest truth. Telling me the God's honest truth. And I didn't want to hit him. I didn't have any ill thoughts about him. I knew he was telling me the God's honest truth. And I walked out of there February 25th of 2002. probably 20 degrees outside. I walked out and my swimming trunks and my shoes and a dingy white t-shirt that I had on in there for a year and a half. Because that's what I got locked up in. My shoes and my swimming trunks. And that was it. No shirt. And that's what I got locked up in. And I walked out of there and I was shivering. I was shaking. And I wasn't shivering shaking because it was cold. I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. I wanted to go back in so bad because I'm okay in there. I can stay sober in there. And I'm comfortable in there. And I'm terrified of what it's going to be like out there because now I'm all alone. I don't know anybody. What am I going to do? I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have a car. I don't have clothes. I don't have, fur- I don't have nothing. My mother agreed to allow me to live with her as long as I stayed sober. And uh, as soon as I got home, as soon as I got home to my mom's, I picked up the phone and I called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy that was in the same cell block as I was that had been out for a couple of months that was going to AA and staying sober. And I called him. I told him I was scared. And he laughed at me. He said, spend the day with your family. My wife and I will come pick you up this evening. You know, we'll go to a meeting. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, and I went to meetings every day for a long time after that. I uh, I ended up falling into that group, the Craddock Study Group over in Portsmouth, and I got a sponsor. And my sponsor said I got rules. The very first thing he said to me when I asked him to sponsor me, he said I got rules. Obviously, I don't do well with rules. He said, Are you willing to go to any lakes? I said yes. He said, you're to call me every single day at 530. You're to go to a minimum of five meetings a week. You're to get on your knees and pray in the morning and pray at night. You're to read a doctor's opinion every single day for 30 days. Do you have a dictionary? I said, no. He said, get a dictionary. You're going to need it. Let me have your book. I gave him my big book. He underlined a bunch of words in the doctor's opinion. He said, when you get that dictionary, you need to write out the definitions of these words on a piece of paper. And when you're reading this chapter, when you get to one of these words, stop and look at the definition so you can understand what it is that you're reading. Those were his instructions. One of those words was allergy. I thought, this guy's an idiot if he thinks mm-hmm. I don't know what an allergy is. You eat something, you swell up, like you scratch, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? When I looked up the definition of the word allergy, it's altered bodily reactivity to a chemical or substance. It made sense. It put things in perspective of what Dr. Silkworth was talking about when I ingest alcohol into my system, that something happens internally. Something happens that makes it virtually impossible for me to control the amount of alcohol I'm going to drink after I take the first drink. That's it. It's the only thing that makes me alcohol. All the circumstances of life and the situations, none of that stuff makes me alcoholic. 
the obsession to drink that this time's going to be different. I can just have a few just to quiet my mind a little bit. And once I take a few, all bets are off as to when I'm going to stop and what's going to happen. That's it. Definition of alcoholism. That's it. That's me. And uh, so I met with my sponsor. We, we met. We read the book. We went through the steps. I uh, did a third step with my sponsor one night in the basement of our home, at church after our home group. And uh, we got down on our knees. We held hands. We said a third step prayer. And I didn't have a car license for a couple of years. First couple of years I was out. Luckily, there was a lot of meetings in, close to me in the neighborhood. And, and my home group was a few blocks away. And, and I lived in Craddock. And, um, and I remember walking home from the meeting that night. And I remember walking home and just had this overwhelming sense of peace and calmness come over me and my head got quiet my body my skin got tingly and i just intuitively knew everything was going to be okay just intuitively knew that everything was going to be okay in light of my in spite of my certain in light of my circumstances at that time and uh and that lasted i don't know maybe 10 15 20 seconds and i started thinking about the fourth step you know oh god here we go right and um you know, I got a job. I got a job when I got out of there, and, and uh, one of my sponsors, other sponsees, worked with his company, and, and anyway, he helped me to get a job where he worked, and uh, it was a guy who was a family-owned business, and they believed in giving people second chances. I didn't go in there and lie. And, you know, I straight up told him I just got out. I'm a two-time convicted violent felon. I told him what my charges were, what I was locked up for. I said, I'm a sober member of AA now. I'm just trying to get my life back on track. And he said, everybody makes mistakes. We'll teach you. And they taught me a trade, taught me mechanics on tractor trailers and taught me how to weld. And I fell in love with welding, put myself through school and became a certified welder. And, um, you know, I ended up, uh, a lot of things happened early on in sobriety. I ended up working with some guys and, and got to see their life change and um, moved up to Richmond in 2009 and, and got a job working at a mulch facility in a maintenance shop up there. And, and I was up there for a few years and uh, a friend of mine from my old home group owned a business. And, uh, and they asked me to come over and work for them over the fence company. And, uh, and I went over there. I've been over there since January 2014. And I started off working um, in, as a fleet and, ma uh, fleet and tool manager and uh, yard manager and uh, moved up. was there for two years doing that, put, put made me a superintendent and uh, did superintendent for almost three years. And then it made me uh, an estimator and project manager. And, uh, and I and now I, I sit behind a desk most days looking at computer screens and drawings and and uh, and bidding you know fence projects and uh, God's got a really good sense of humor. I uh, I started doing corrections work. Um, I got got cleared for the first time in the Hampton City Jails around six or seven years sober. And I've been turned down to quite a few facilities trying to get in. And uh, my friend Linda from over in Hampton called me one day. She said I got an application for you to fill out. I talked to the programs coordinator. I told her your story, and she said to get you to fill the application out. She'd do whatever she has to do to get you clearance. And uh, and I started taking meetings in over there. Did that for a little bit, and then I moved to Richmond. And when I moved to Richmond, I applied to a bunch of facilities around here, and I got shot down every single one of them. And I was about to throw in the towel on corrections work and, and move over to treatment or something, you know, CPC, PI. Or, I mean, I did those CPC work and PI work. And, um, I applied to one last facility out of Deep Meadows and uh, said, let me give it a shot. And about 11 months later, I got my ID card in the mail. And the guy that had been taking a meeting out there was no longer going out there, so I really got a fresh start. And, and, and uh, me and a couple other members of Alcoholics Anonymous that were involved in corrections, we went out there and met with the warden. We sat down and we set up an AA meeting. And I remember doing that meeting for a couple of years. And, and um, you know, in Virginia, once you're a volunteer in the same facility for a year, you can apply for a statewide uh, clearance 
And I remember after I'd been out there for a year, I sent in my application for statewide clearance, you know, getting my hopes up, but really believing it wasn't going to happen. Stuff like that doesn't happen for people like me. As many times as I've been shot down at facilities. And uh, three weeks later, I got my statewide volunteer ID card in the mail. I can walk in any prison in the state of Virginia as a volunteer. Company I worked for thought it'd be uh, kind of funny if they gave me the Department of Corrections contract. <laughs> so now I also do defense work for Depart uh, for Department of Corrections in the prisons, and uh, and it's a different. It's, it's you know it's the same form you fill out for clearance, for release, and I have I, I my volunteer badge doesn't work in some of those places, so I have to fill that paperwork out, and I get turned down. <laughs> There's a guy that just passed away recently from down in North Carolina, my hero in Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy named Tom Ivester. And Tom used to always say, when there's work to be done, the walls will come down. And I believe that. You know, my work in, in, in the correctional system is to be the carry the message. might not be the fence work. I still do it. I just have to send somebody else in there besides me. Um, but my work is, is to carry the message of AA in those facilities. And... Um, you know, my, my life started to change uh, in so many ways. I, I have things in my life that I never wanted, that I didn't know that I wanted, uh, that I didn't know that I needed, that I have that brought me immense pleasure, immense happiness. And, um, you know, I got the opportunity to go out to the prison that I was in and take a meeting in out there and drop off some literature out there because it's in a district that doesn't have the funds to get literature for their facility. And I was able to sit in the very same visitation room out there that I used to sit in at the AA meetings when I was in there and sleep or read a book. But I had to go there and sign in 10 times to get my good time. And that was it. I went 10 times and didn't go back. And I had the opportunity to go down and, and participate in a conference down in North Carolina a few years back. And the guy that was hosting me that weekend, we got to talking. And he said, yeah, I used to live up in Virginia and take meetings into a prison in there. I said, yeah. So which one? He's like, I don't remember. He's like, I have to look around and see if I got my old ID card. So when I met with him down in North Carolina at the conference that weekend, we went out to dinner that Friday. He said, oh, by the way, I found my card. He said it was Baskerville that I took the meetings into. And it was the same man that brought the AA meetings in there to me some 20 years prior, almost 20 years prior to that. And um, I, I don't believe, you know, in coincidence I believe there's whatever's happening out there made that happen, you know, and I believe that God just showed off in my life with that one. And, uh, and then I just recently got the opportunity to go out there and install more fence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I take a meeting today into a facility out in Nottaway, and, um, and it's, it's my favorite meeting. I started a meeting out there oh, five years ago, I guess, and uh, I go out there today. There's 25 or 30 guys that show up every single Monday. And it's my absolute favorite meeting. And I've got to watch guys come out of that facility and come to AA and not not stay in AA, and they're right back out there. And I get to go see them out there now again. And be like, what happened? Well, you know. <laughs> and then I get to see guys get out of there and stay and stay here. And I get to participate in their life. And I get to watch their life change as a result of what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get to watch them give back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get to build a friendship with them and a relationship with them. I didn't have friendships before. I didn't know how to have. I, just, I really don't have know how to have friendships and relationships today. I'm still trying. I'm still on the path. I'm still selfish and self-centered. But I try to do a little bit better each and every day. And it's through coming here and 
being in a relationship with you and being a part of your life and being willing, when I'm asked, regardless of whether it's last minute or not, seeing if I can do something and rearranging my schedule to do what I need to do when I'm asked to be of service. Thanks for having me.